Hi, and welcome to the Perpetual Stew. I'm Matt. And I'm Sarah. We want to welcome our listeners from the Law of Averages over to the new channel. We decided that after our hiatus, because I stupidly took a job where I could not podcast, which I will never do again, Bill. Uh, <laughs> uh, that we wanted to expand some of the topics that we're going to be discussing. So we're going to be talking about a broad range of issues. Of course, all the legal coverage uh, that you are used to, but also we're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about politics. Anything else that you think we're going to cover? I mean, all that stuff. The The discussion that we had before was that, you know, if the perpetual stew is life itself, which is all of those things, and the kettle that it simmers in is kind of like the regulatory environment that we all live in, which is, you know, dependent on legislation and the judiciary and all kinds of stuff. So I wanted, uh, you know, I think we both wanted to be able to talk about a few more things and also... Um, so that if any jerkwad tries to come into your life later and say like, well, you have a legal podcast and you can't do it. You can say, well, it's really not just a legal podcast. It's really a lifestyle podcast. Yeah. It all goes together in one giant stew. You can't separate out the parts of our lives as neatly as many would like to. That's right. And if you are unaware of the, uh, actual history of the real thing called the perpetual stew, which is like a sort of generally pre-electricity sort of thing that was when you would leave a kettle on the stove or on the fire over the fire and uh, you just kind of add water and you know pig parts or chicken feed or wherever you had you know off the farm or from wherever from the market and just throw it in there and keep a soup going all the time and you know if you don't have refrigeration keep it hot so that's what we're doing with this discussion. And generally, that's how we both are, I think, that oh, we yeah. always have uh, ideas, concepts, things that go in, they get hot, and then to avoid boiling over, we need to uh, ladle some out to the audience. We need to get it get it out of our out of our pot and into, uh, into I don't know, this, this analogy is breaking down, into their ears. I mean, I, I like this idea in terms of, uh, you know when you've been making a soup that you really think is going to be like your fucking liquid magnum opus, <laughs> but then by the time it's like done, you've tasted it 40 times and you're like, well, I have really no idea if this is good or bad. So you have to send it to a friend and just like, is this anything? Like, is this good? It has like 50 things in it. And they can be like, this is insane. Don't ever make this again. Or like, yeah, it's pretty good. Exactly. So that so that's what we are. So please uh, let us know. Uh, <laughs> please. Uh, yeah, please let us know what you're thinking, any topics. Uh, we're going to get social media up. It'll be in the uh, show notes, so you can see that there. And then I'll add a little tag on future episodes of where you can get in touch with us. So this week, it's the legal money. Take your time. So... <laughs> I'm keeping it in. <laughs> yeah, uh, good. So, so this week, it's the legal money laundering episode. Yes. And da, da, uh, da, da, da. <coughs> I guess before we get started, uh, I want to ask you the perpetual question, which is, what are you eating, Matt, and what's eating you? So I'm eating homemade spaghetti and meatballs. Fuck yeah. Yeah. When, when left to my own devices, I make my grandmother's meatball recipe, yes. um, which does not use milk. Instead, you have to moisten your hands while you roll the meatballs. Awesome. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's the really only, and they're quite small. So they're kind of, you split them in half and you eat and you eat each half with like a little spoonful of pasta. It actually works really, really well. Um, and so Sarah, uh, no, what's eating me? Yes. Um, oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to choose? Um, 
of the many, many things that are eating me, I have to say that this is probably an its own episode. All the people on the left who seem to be so upset about cancel culture on college campuses, but yet tend not to downplay things like book bannings and banning CRT from classrooms. Uh, I just feel th- they've just been pissing me off. It feels like uh, friendly fire. Oh, man. Yes, we really, we absolutely should do an episode about friendly fire because uh, I had one of those like driving down a long road thoughts where it's like, damn, we have so framed the Russian influence problem as a right wing problem that like, you know, listen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but like (laughs) if the Russians can just like route their own propaganda through right wing media and like we think that we are immune to that via social media or Instagram or whatever, like, that's fucking insane. Which is why the only Instagram I follow is the Metal Honey <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that more later. But seriously, I, I am terrible at new social media. I still use Facebook like an old person. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Sarah, uh, what are you eating and what's eating you? Okay, first of all, if you see some blueberries in the store right now, they're coming from Mexico and they are amazing. Like... Mexico is in their magical, uh, like, bloob season. So if you see those out there, you should get a pint. You can just eat them by the fistful. They're incredible. And the thing that is eating me is what brings us to today's topic, which is I am a business owner in the process of seeking out help, advice, but funding, uh, especially, and sort of understanding the channels of getting funding and getting capital. Um, and I talked to a really, really smart woman, Marcy Orr, at a company called Bankable here in, in Anderson today, and she gave me a lot of really great advice. And it got me thinking about motherfucking SoftBank, and it got me thinking about WeWork. And I have this thought, like, every single time I think about, like, the fact that, like, if I had, you know, a hundred grand, which is, like, you know, that's, you know, the... Travis, what's his name? The Uber guy. He shits that out, you know, oh. after his morning coffee. You know, <laughs> Travis Kalanick or whatever his yeah, name that, is. Yeah, him. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And but in the business world, a hundred, a hundred grand is nothing. not a lot. It's yeah. nothing. It's it's it is nothing in the in the grand scheme. Even in restaurants, even in like food truck terms, it's really not that much money. So, thinking about that, and then thinking about uh, the SoftBank, their Vision Fund. And that got me thinking about all the ways that money laundering happens in front of our eyes all the time. And it's perfectly legal and there's not a lot of regulation of it. And we talked about it before a little bit with NFTs. And I just wanted to have you, a smart person who will not let your rage overcome you, help me work through this and explain this. Because I think more people need to know about it. I uh, actually have gotten out a lot of rage on this topic already, so <laughs> I am, I've explained it to many people in many ways, um, and I think that at this point I am able to keep my head, so I, I appreciate it. I think this is a good opportunity to talk about something that is often invisible. I think that when we see the effects of it, for example, when we see insane rent prices in New York, we say, why are they going up that way? When we see suddenly like South Dakota (laughs) getting all this money, um, why is every business in Delaware? Um, (laughs) You know, why Why, is Chelsea football team up for sale? (laughs) Why is there, why is a third of the, like, it's like over a third or maybe even like half of all high rises above like 150 floors, right? So we're talking like ultra luxury buildings. 
you know, most of those buildings are empty. They're rented, but no one lives there. Uh-huh. That's what I mean, that it's in plain sight. Yes. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's one of those... I, I, t I talk about this all the time. We have so many fish in water situations, but it turns out that someone's been poisoning the water. Yes. Um, so we're all choking and we're all feeling the effects, but we're never quite sure why. So, yeah, I think this is a great topic. Uh, but let's tart t uh, start with SoftBank. So, Sarah, tell me what you know about SoftBank. <sighs> okay. It's a Japanese bank. Um, and I actually just looked up the founder on my other computer and I don't use that one for the recording this podcast. Um, but uh, it's a bank through which it's a it's an investment bank, right? So they move like a lot of capital around for startups and, you know, for places exactly like Uber. And in this case, uh, WeWork is what really made them made the public m as, as broadly aware of SoftBank as like <laughs> your average person <laughs> drinking coffee at their at their dining room table is going to know about them. But um, which is that they are pretty freely allowed to move insane amounts of money, insane amounts of money. The, the 17 billion that went into WeWork, which is, um, if you don't know what WeWork is, it was, it was and remains, it's still going, um, but it was a company that was essentially paying office workers and business owners to move their office to a WeWork property, which was not owned by WeWork. WeWork would rent the property and then sell it at below market to sort of try to consolidate all of these tenants into WeWork buildings, which they, I guess, thought they could eventually buy or get investments to buy and then sort of have this, you know, monopoly on co-working and, and office spaces. Uh, except that that's, did you hear what I just said? That's the craziest <laughs> fucking thing anyone's ever thought of. <laughs> well, uh, the thing that gets me is that they were billed as a tech company. Yes. It was, it was, in, uh, it was a real estate company billing itself as a tech company doing bad real estate transactions. Like, let me put it this way, that the idea of buying something wholesale and then put cutting it into pieces and then selling it retail is not a new, is not a, like a technology. That's something no. that's been done forever. Let's put it this way. When my dad first was working as a lawyer, <laughs> he rented like a floor of an office building and then rented out the individual offices to other people. Yeah. Just to make a little extra money on the side. Like, he did not go, wow, I'm some sort of tech CEO. <laughs> Um, and then there was not a Netflix documentary uh, made about him, um, but called We Crashed, which incidentally does not quite capture the insanity um, yeah. of WeWork. But yeah, and and so SoftBank's um, founder and CEO is um, Masayoshi Son. Yes. Uh, he is kind of a crazy person. Um, okay, okay. This helps explain it a little bit. Go yeah. on. Um, now... SoftBank is not just does not just do finance. It, that's its main thing. It also mm. is like, I think it's the uh, the third largest wireless carrier in Japan and has like ah. forty five like over forty five million people on their wireless service. Got it. Um, so they are the thirty sixth largest public company in the world as of ah. twenty seventeen. They're the second largest public company in Japan behind Toyota. So we're talking about something. It is gigantic got right? it it is got gigantic it. it has revenues of over 56 billion dollars a year um mm -hmm. and it has total assets of over 340 billion dollars so Fuck. it is an enormous company it has almost 81,000 employees Fuck. so it started as a software distributor 
guess why it was called SoftBank Core, because it was Got software. It. Yeah. So that's a little something about SoftBank. And it eventually worked its way, like all horrible people, into finance. <laughs> um, but I think the part of it that you want to talk about most is SoftBank's Vision Fund. Yes. <laughs> Oh, the Vision Fund. So uh, talk about, uh, there is a guy, there was a younger man that was in charge of the Vision Fund. And if you, there's a couple of really devastating um, sort of takedowns of VC culture that were written in the last couple of years, like in PC Mag and a couple ones that are just talking about like, when, when, when people say that the tech industry is entirely bluster with like a few good ideas circul circulating, um, uh, it's it's beyond your wildest imagination of how much it's just about like being drunk around your bros. And this is the kind of the person who is in charge of the Vision Fund. Yeah. So the head of uh, the president of the Vision Fund for WeWork was Rajiv Misra. Yeah. So he had been a banker and. So that's why he was tapped to run the Vision Fund, which is, has about $100 billion um, in capital that it could invest. So Misra, uh, he, sorry, he was the CEO. <laughs> he was the one who met uh, with investors and made decisions. He would often make these decisions extremely quickly, which is very, Great. very strange <laughs> um, it's very strange thing for any for any large investment group to make fast decisions. Matt, I sat on moving to a two ounce container, plastic container, for three months, and I ordered ten samples of a two ounce plastic container in like ten different configurations of how you can put two ounces of liquid into a two ounce goddamn bottle. And this person is making decisions moving around billions of dollars faster than I can decide on what size of bottle fits on a charcuterie board best. Fucking kill Exactly. <laughs> so this is not something that you would make after basically having a conversation uh, with someone like Adam Newman, who was the founder and CEO uh, of um, WeWork. He basically... And a raging... And a raging alcoholic and, uh, like, one of the most deeply insecure human beings that's ever exactly. been Exactly. And, and Misra basically met with him. But Newman can be very charismatic. Of course. Psychopaths <laughs> yeah. tend to be very great at parties. <laughs> and, so, and so basically after that conversation, uh, they decided to bet a ton of money on WeWork and on other uh, – on WeWork. And this was an, a part of a string of failures. So not in, in addition to WeWork, there was also WAG, OYO, and my favorite was the robot pizzeria Zoom, uh, Z-U-M-E. Um, and they managed to lose billions of dollars oh. on that. Great, yeah. great. So this was to the point where Masayoshi-san, who's not known for his quiet temperament or like his particular ability to make tempered decisions even he was upset and angry and thought that <laughs> uh we work had been a problem once again when your really drunk friend who's on drugs and is always a mess comes to you and is like hey maybe you should think about slowing down a little bit like you need to go to rehab immediately yeah and uh, 
And I'm not just talking, and we're not just talking here about, oh, they're really bad at investments. It's also that they had in a really bad workplace environment. There were a bunch of high-level high employees left. And then there were stories of Misra's attempts to smear other SoftBank executives. My favorite was an attempt to uh, take photographs of the former SoftBank president, uh, Nikesh Aurora, with a woman or women in a hotel room. Come on! Come on! This is like, again, again, every time the last the theme of the last four years is 30 Rock already wrote a joke about this. Yeah. Like, this is the I don't sleep on planes, I don't want to be incepted joke. It, the problem that fiction has with comedy, with science fiction, is that reality is just even more nuts. Oh my god. Oh my god. And to make this even crazier is that some of the major investors in the SoftBank group, uh, sorry, in the Vision Fund, can you guess who they are? <laughs> oh, don't don't say like fucking don't say like Elon Musk or No, don't. it's actually not Elon Musk. Oh. Other than being a horrible asshole, people like Saudi Saudi Arabia. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say it's either someone it's either a terrible personality or a Saudi billionaire, like a Saudi prince. It's actually the Saudi government. Great, even better. Yeah, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Uh, contributed $45 billion of the $100 billion in the fund. That, you know what else we need to do a whole fucking episode on is the right wing's completely hypocritical relationship with Saudi Arabia and Islamophobia. Anyway, yes. moving on. So this was obviously more than a PR problem, as one can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, Saudi Arabia might have murdered Jamal Khashoggi. They sponsor terrorism. This is part of a plan by oil rentier states. And by rentier state, I mean states that make most of their money not through normal economic activities, um, but through extractive industries. Yep. Um, we call them rentier states because they are essentially just, they get paid in rent off of just being on top of that land. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, contracts. It's like um, oil and mineral contracts here in the United States or... Uh, rare earth contracts in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and it's everywhere. It's just everywhere. The difference is, is that in a rentier state, that is essentially the only real economy. True, yeah. Um, and that makes them particularly, because it doesn't take a lot of, I, I'm just going to do a little bit of poli-sci 101. The reason they're classified separately, like the United States is the largest oil producer in the world. But we're not classified as a rentier state because while energy extractive industries are uh, are large, um, they are not a huge por proportion of our overall economy. Right. But and the reason that this sort these sort of industries are particularly ripe for abuse, uh, fraud, corruption, um, and lead to authoritarian regimes, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is because they produce relatively large profits without requiring a very large labor base. Right. So essentially, in a place like Saudi Arabia, 10% of the population is required to produce 90% of GDP. Right. Um, so That's you can really see how that would lead to vast inequality because the people who control those rights get all the money, and then that can lead to uh, horrific abuses. <laughs> yep. That's why we classify them separately, because rentier states have this entirely different uh, political dynamic 
because of the way that their economies are structured. Um, but Saudi Arabia is not stupid. Uh, the Saudi royal family is not stupid. They know that they will not be able to make money perpetually off of oil. So they're trying to use their um, wealth now to generate durable wealth in the future. And um, the Vision Fund is one of the ways that they're trying to diversify out of just the pure extractive industries um, into other areas, particularly technology. And you can see this in the other investors in the uh, Vision Fund being uh, companies like Foxconn uh, or Apple. Put it this way, the second Vision Fund, (laughs) because there's a second one now, they actually tried to raise money from outside investors, but it's now purely funded by SoftBank because no one else would invest. Great. Oh, that's always a really good sign. Yeah. Yeah, because the first one horrifically failed. They lost Mm. a ton of money uh, on bets like WeWork. Like WeWork alone, I think, lost them over $7 billion. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, who would have thought that if you rent things and then rent them out below their market rate, (laughs) that that is how you lose money? But Adam Newman and his wife managed to walk away with over $1.5 billion personally. Tight. I love yeah. post-capitalism. Yeah. I love late-stage capitalism. It's working great. <laughs> it worked great for Newman. And I just have to say to anybody out there who has $7 billion to burn, I am very happy to waste your $7 billion as long as I get <laughs> to keep $1.5 billion of it for myself. <laughs> I'm just saying, you don't, you don't, it won't even take as long as we work. It'll be much simpler. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, for God's sake, like... Not to go all biblical on everybody's ass, but like just buy the gold bars and literally bury them in your front yard. No, bury yeah. them in your backyard. That's more secure. <laughs> oh, that's a really good point. No one will ever think of the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> also, it gives you, I guess, it gives you more more space to like try to build a castle uh, Wait, out was, in yeah. front. Yeah, you got to have your moat out there to protect your wealth. Duh. You, you know how much I am all about moats. Um, <laughs> I love moats. Um, So the reason this has probably impacted listeners' lives is probably not because they were part of WeWork, probably not because they were involved in these. It's because because places like Saudi Arabia, in the wake of, you know, (laughs) Jamal Khashoggi and stuff, try to use the money that they generate from their investments and from their their, uh, uh, oil extraction. Mm Mm-hmm to launder their reputations because they want to be seen as legitimate investors so they can make this other money. So there's this cycle, right? They get the money from the oil, they plow it into investments, and they use the returns on that to then uh, launder their reputations, which they do through what is hilariously called Vision 2030. (laughs) Right? Because the the, the vision branding worked well. Uh, for Saudi Arabia before, but this is Mohammed bin Salman's plan uh, to try to create a tourism industry and Great. foreign investment in Saudi Arabia. Great. I think that, you know, whatever five mile long indoor skiing thing is going to be great. I think it's just money out in and out the door. <laughs> They're just going to print it. So Saudi Arabia invested $45 billion into the Vision Fund. So, how much do you think Saudi Arabia has put toward Vision 2030? Oh, God. Uh, am I assuming that they learn from their mistakes? No. Oh, great. $100 billion. 
close. It's sixty-four billion. Okay. So far, <laughs> it will be it will be a hundred billion soon. So, just in the last four years, these are the people who have been paid by Saudi Arabia to perform there: Enrique Iglesias, great, Mariah Carey, okay, Andrea Bocelli, hmm. Janet Jackson, Fifty mm-hmm. Cent, mm. and J Lo. So it's like 2006 to 2009 in Saudi Arabia, like culturally. Oh, yeah. And WWE as well. Perfect. Oh, good. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because there was that whole controversy Mm -hmm. about it. But I have to say there have been and I want to give shout outs, just like we're highlighting, low lighting the people who took the money. There are some highlights who turned down the money because of uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, human rights record. And I want to name them. Nicki Minaj said fuck no <laughs> which is like great on Nicki Minaj great Emily Ratajkowski uh, from is... Indiana who went to IU who is that uh, she's an actress she uh, was in the Blurred Lines video and oh, then oh oh yeah 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 and then in oh, yeah, Gone Girl she was the yeah she uh, she played or she's friends with um, Sarah Hoover whose mom runs all the Cafe Patitudes here in Indianapolis they're bad bitches. Yeah. Yeah. And she is incredibly beautiful and incredibly talented. IU alum. Go Hoosiers. Go Hoosiers. Hoosiers um, all over the place. And uh, John Cena. Oh, 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 that makes me so happy. I already have such a weird, I, it's, I have a weird Cena thing. And I, that makes me so happy that he said, no, no, no. I, I have, I have plenty of money. I don't need any of these. <laughs> He still does business with China because, you know, he's in Hollywood. You kind of yeah, have to. Yeah. But I have to give him props for this one. And I really do like John Cena, too. Um, <sighs> Me, too. Yeah. Um, Richard Branson, in a rare moment of doing something <laughs> cool, suspended, like, decided not to partner anymore with Saudi Arabia on space tourism. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. That is such a hilarious line to draw. Yeah. For- Branson, you know what I mean? Like, g- great, great. I'm not, I'm not upset at all. But like, uh, oi, you know what? I've decided after looking over your record that I don't think it would be prudent for me to have space tourism out of this country with your slaves. I mean, like, it may be Barack Obama said he wouldn't go windsurfing with them anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, Richard, I need to be clear. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the record on their human rights is just not where it needs to be. And I don't think it would be prudent for you to start something as silly as space tourism uh, with a bunch of slaves and slave labor. That's that's what we're talking about. I don't I don't feel good about my Barack Obama, but I feel that it's I think it's better good. now. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I do want to call out one more low light. To surprise no one, Chris Brown was totally happy to take the money. <laughs> Sorry. I'm yeah. sorry, like, back to sending back the current, like, script for the present, you know, sending back the script for reality for rewrites because the jokes are, like, too obvious. Yep. And uh, <laughs> despite uh, protestations to the contrary, it really was Shaggy who performed there. Uh- <laughs> it, come on. Pretty good. Yeah. Oh, though, it, it, even more callbacks. Brian Adams? Huh. L- Lionel? Really, really. Sorry. Yeah. But, like, Yanni? (laughs) (laughs) Jamiroquai? Like, what the hell is this? Like, it's deeply confusing who they chose to to, to ask to come play there. I don't know. Like, 
does anybody remember Jamiroquai? <laughs> okay, okay. First of all, we all know that. Listen, go right now as soon as we hang up here. Go listen to uh, Virtual Insanity because it's a bop and it made it on the radio, which, like, once in a while, America really appreciates a good chord progression. And I like that. And you know what? That entire album. Is, kind of a banger. It is just banger after banger after banger. I know, it's a it was fantastic a fun. album. It's, it's also fun, the like... first MP3 I ever illegally downloaded. Oh, that's so... Aw, oh, history. Oh. It took 17 minutes. Somewhere Lars Ulrich is so mad at you. He's just like got like a twinge on the back of his head. <laughs> you know what? Uh, no offense to Metallica. I mean, yeah, maybe this will make him happier. Um, I never downloaded, illegally downloaded any Metallica. <laughs> Yeah, uh, me either, because I never wanted it on my yeah. computer. <laughs> so um, I don't know if that makes me not cool or whatever, but I feel like I made the right choice here. <laughs> can, I just, can I just break off for the, one of the funniest things I've ever seen, uh, which is I went to Lollapalooza the year that Metallica was one of the headliners, and on Sunday morning, you know, it's, it's GA, obviously, so you have to, like, line up at the gate and then just run for it if you want to get front row, and then you just wait there all day at the rail. Well, of course, you know, Metallic, or sorry. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Pearl Jam. It was Pearl Jam. Never mind. But it was no, all this, these. <laughs> I'm keeping this in. <laughs> it was all this. It was all these. The point is the crowd is the same and the reaction would be the same. It was a bunch of middle-aged dudes with the live tattoos. And to watch them, like, you know, with like, you know, all the middle-aged, uh, you know, fat deposits of their livers just like trucking out in front of them, just like three or four inches in front of their chest. And I mean running like she's a track star like i mean running like someone should have played should have taken slow-mo video and played chariots of fire over it and that's art incidentally maybe the greatest maybe the greatest uh, uh movie soundtrack of all time yeah <laughs> chariots yeah. of fire um this is sort of a personal digression but my dad loved chariots of fire oh. um so uh, I, this is not to bring it down. Actually, this is one of my favorite memories. So like um, he had uh, toward the end of his life when he was home, just in like the last the last morning that he was alive, he was asleep um, oh. um, and uh, was in the process of, of, of passing. Um, Sarah, uh, Sarah Taylor turned on the Chariots of Fire soundtrack oh. at like 5 a.m. And. It was one of those bizarrely perfect moments. Yeah. Because if he were going to move on to whatever comes next, whether it is something or nothing, yeah. that was the appropriate soundtrack. That is the music he would have chosen. And it was uh, a deeply emotional and hilarious moment uh, at the same time. So if you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, <laughs> it is a great movie about um, running. Yeah. And... Um... Also, that wasn't a sad story. That's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. Like, that is such a, um, like, you know, that's a that's a, a signifier of your relationship. It's like, you know, like you, it, like recognizing that that was the moment. And of course it was. Like, that's that's so beautiful. What a, yeah. what a lovely sentiment. Exactly. And um, I, I hate to get back onto depressing <laughs> shit. But we are going to talk a little bit uh, we're going to expand the conversation a little bit to talk about how all of this money doesn't just slosh to places like WeWork and SoftBank, but is probably somewhere, maybe not in your town, but your town adjacent. Yep. <laughs> and all that after the break. 
So, Sarah, can I tell you a story? Please. So this is a, a story that doesn't seem nefarious on its surface, but there's a lot bubbling just underneath. My favorite kind of story. Go ahead. So let's say you work at a bank. Pass, let's... but, but I, <laughs> I will get in the mindset. Okay. Let, let's say you work in finance and you get your yearly bonus. And your yearly bonus is nice. It, let's say it's like a million bucks. Hmm. Right? Um, so what might you do with that million dollars? Me personally? I'm saying theoretical Sarah. Banker Sarah. Oh, boy. You're in New I York would, City, you know. I would I would probably find a way for it to make more money in New York City so I could buy more New York City things. Yeah. Like, I would buy a fucking brownstone and rent it. Yeah. So let's say you buy a brownstone, right, with that million dollars. Uh, you probably need to borrow a little bit of extra money on the side because it's still New York. That gets financed because uh, yep. you know the, the right people and you rent it out, right? This looks good. You have income. People have places to, to live. But now you ask yourself, where did that million dollars come from? Correct. Right? So that million dollars came from a bunch of other places, investments you make here, investments you make there, but often it's quite obscure um, <laughs> where the money's flowing, where the investments are. Um, so let's say, right, that uh, you made an investment, in, that, you, the, that you made it in tech companies, and part of that was, say, Apple, mm -hmm. right? Apple makes money all over the place. Um, they make a lot of money in China. They were part of the first vision fund. So now you start seeing how your million dollars gets connected yep. <laughs> to human rights abuses in China, uh, to repression in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and you might say to yourself, well, that's kind of attenuated, right? I was, <laughs> I've just thought of a horrible joke, which is every time a banker gets a bonus somewhere a suicide net is being woven. That, <laughs> it's, I don't know if that's a joke or if that's just like it's just kind of true. It's not, it's not funny because it's just what is happening yeah. in the global economy right now. Yeah, because you say, oh, these, these companies are doing great. Fo look at Foxconn making that money with those great margins and low costs and it's because they freaking basically imprison their workers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, for those who don't know the origin of that joke, Foxconn, which manufactures a lot of the electronics um, in China – they had to install nets outside their buildings because their workers were trying to jump out of the windows to commit suicide. Yeah, like, we, it's not, like, it is not actual, actual technical slavery in the sort of terms that, like, maybe we think of it, but, like, it isn't also not that, I just well, want to say. Well, it is... Something that is, like, basically not allowed anymore, it's factory yeah. towns. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> for those who don't know what factory towns were, in U.S. history, they were literally towns that were owned by the factory yeah. or by the company so that everything from the store to the houses yeah. was owned by the company. And basically, you had to pay the company for rent. You had to pay the company for food. And often the costs that you had to pay the company were more than your wages. Yes. Or, or it's so weird how it costs exactly as much <laughs> as your wage to survive in a company town. It's weird that it's cent to cent in and out. Yes. So the people, and then you're at the full control of the company too, politically yeah. because they run everything. 
Um, And and I don't want to, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like that's normal. Like best case scenario is the, the company is end to end running you dry, but in your, you're exactly right. The most of the time what happens is then the company also has a bank. They offer you a loan to get you through. And then you are literally a debt slave because you can never live anywhere else. That's exactly it. And that is essentially what happens at places like Foxconn. And that's why people were committing suicide. They were lured in um, with the promises of a steady job. And we can think about, you know, the glory days of the American workers in the mid 20th century. It ain't that. (laughs) Um, It's the opposite of that. It's more like turn of the century, (laughs) like (laughs) uh, factory conditions, uh, except, you know, with suicide nets. So you can't even escape uh, through death. Yeah. So. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. So. We might think, you know, that's attenuated. Fine. Let's just move a little bit uptown. I mean, you just bought a brownstone. But how about all those giant high-rises, you know, uh, in Manhattan? The high-rises that are so tall, that have so much flexion at the top, no matter what they do to try to compensate for it, that, like, pipes burst all the time because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're literally we're not supposed to have things that are 200 stories or 300 stories in the air that are apartments. Yeah. And this doesn't have to be New York. It could also be London. Sure. <laughs> uh, oh, it could be a London's, bunch of places. London's great because you have both the high rises, but you also have pretty close to the city. Uh, these like beautiful country estates that are completely empty and just have like a gardener to maintain the exterior because those are also owned by Saudi princes and not lived in. <laughs> Exactly. So now you're looking around, you're like, well, you know, at least in those high rises, they're generating tax revenue that pay for all of these things. But as Sarah just noted, they're empty. So why would someone buy an apartment that just sits there for, I mean, for millions and millions of dollars, why would they sit there and have it be empty? Hmm. Hmm. It sounds like a thing that's going to appreciate value uh, if there is scarcity uh, and if you can buy a lot of other things and make your thing even more scarce. It seems like that would be a way a very wealthy person might artificially bump up its value. Exactly. And let's say, you know, these and and the thing I want to note about a lot of these empty apartments they're not actually owned by individuals. They're owned by companies. Correct. Well, well and, and any person, like, any t- if you start a business and you understand how much the American tax economy is built on, uh, I mean, essentially t- sheltering business owners from taxes, and then you, of course, like, you would also, as I would like to and might still, LLC a shell company so that I can, so that my business can own my house, you know? Mm-hmm. And it used to be, which is smart, I guess, because it's the way the tax code works, but stupid, too, because why does our tax code work that way? Um, (laughs) But now let's say, now we have to start thinking about why does this company, why doesn't, if I'm like, let's say now, let's switch, I'm a Russian oligarch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Matthew Goodman, the uh, Korean Russian oligarch. (laughs) So I have billions of dollars that I have gotten. But I don't, but I, 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 like, no one really wants to take money from a Russian oligarch directly. Correct. Right? So if you're just like, you know, hey, I'm a Russian oligarch. I want to buy this apartment building. 
they're like know your customer laws. There are all these other things that you just you don't want to deal with it. And then there are problems if it turns out that that person gets sanctioned, Correct. right? For say, you know, declaring war on a neighboring country. <laughs> so, so you don't want to deal with all that stuff. So, I'm a Russian oligarch. So I have lots of very, very well-trained lawyers and accountants. Yep. So I just set up a vast network of shell companies. Yes. You go to, you set up a, a shell company in Delaware, which buys your building in Boston, and so on and so forth. Oh, it's crazier than that. I would buy, <laughs> I would start a German company, right? Uh -huh. That's a shell. Well, it could yep. be a real company. Yep. And they'll own a subsidiary that's based out of London which then has a subsidiary that's based out of, I don't know, um, the Virgin Islands mm -hmm. um, or Jamaica. And then they will have a, a subsidiary that uh, is based in Delaware. Mm -hmm. And then they will, then they will buy <laughs> that company in Delaware. Looks like a domestic owner. I have people yep. sitting on the board. There's a, like, there are all these normal things. Of course, I'm paying them a couple grand a year to sit, uh, quote unquote, sit on the board and do all mm -hmm. that stuff. But then, you know, and they also take in all the mail and handle all the paperwork and stuff. But then they buy that pr that property in Boston or New York, and it sits there. Yep. And I can go there if I want. Uh, you, you, I mean, yes, technically, but like it's that that would be for fun because its only job is to exist and take up space and take space off the market and drive up all the rest of the value. Yeah. And maybe my my uh, like an illegitimate child, you know, when she goes to <laughs> goes to school at NYU or Columbia, paying full price, by the way. And often these schools actually charge these people more than full price. That's appropriate. I think that's fine. Yeah, she gets this beautiful swank apartment to live in for the few years that she's there. Right? Looks totally legit. Great. But it turns out that that money's being <laughs> funded because I'm a Russian oligarch. <laughs> And direct ownership of it is a problem because you might end up with the Roman Abramovich situation. And he's a yeah. Russian oligarch who lives in London and has been living the high life. And he owned owns Chelsea Football Club. Correct. But because of sanctions, Chelsea's assets got frozen and Roman Abramovich's assets got frozen. So Chelsea can't sign players. They can't sell players. <laughs> They uh, can pay their they, – they are allowed to pay current players and staff. But if you know anything about soccer, if you can't buy and sell players, you're screwed. I'm sorry. They're having a fire sale for arguably – is that is that the, the most famous British football team? Well, behind Man U, maybe. I mean, okay. they are. Okay. Yeah. But there's a reason why Roman Abramovich wanted to buy Chelsea Football Club, because owning a football team is fun, and they appreciate and value. Um, he's trying to sell it for a few billion dollars, I think three or four billion. He's only gotten offers around two, because no one wants to pay full price, because you know he's a Russian oligarch who's sanctioned. Yep. So that's the problem when you directly own it, right? <laughs> so you should instead be much, much smarter. And do what other companies, what other uh, oligarchs and authoritarians do, and just have it owned through some uh, vast network of shell companies. And then you can also have the the investment trust that's based out of Delaware do business with like Boston Sports Group or something like that. And then you can co-own teams with David Beckham and yeah. uh, Robert Kraft, and, and you're essentially immune to sanctions. Yeah, and then and then like 
our good friend Robert Kraft wouldn't do business with like some kind of like, you know, war criminal, right? Like it's fine. It's you're probably fine. But what's when I say so sometimes <laughs> I like try to explain to people when I talk about ultra wealth and I talk about like employing a full like operating company's worth of people just to hide and protect your wealth Mm -hmm. from sanctions or taxes or whatever. Like I smoke too much weed to ever like uh, really verbalize this in any sort of like eloquent or sensical way. But like this really does that work for me. And thank you for that because it's like what, what you can't, it's not like, Oh yeah. All rich people have a lawyer and an accountant. No, 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 no. I am middle-class and I have an accountant. Like, the ultra wealthy have multiple companies, mm-hmm. which which require not one attorney. We're talking three or four attorneys who are each charging five hundred bucks an hour. Then you have people who, you know, in the case of, for example, like a sports team, you know, that's a ton of employees. But you also get because they you option your player's name, you option their image, so you get a lot of this, you know, massive income return from just like. You know, say you buy into the WWE or MGM Entertainment or Disney or, you know, but uh-huh. but your company doesn't buy into Disney. Like you said, like your fifth you know, <laughs> subsidiary buys <laughs> shares of a holding company which holds a certain amount of this. You know what I'm saying? It's it's this does a good job of explaining that. Yeah, and it And it's all legal. I think that's the part that drives people crazy is that this is all legal, that like the old version of money laundering, the version of money laundering back in the day, if you were like a Colombian drug cartel, right, is that you would set up these shell companies. But they would operate. It would be you really would have a car wash and a bar and a restaurant and then you would just pass through all your cash through these businesses but that's because you dealt in untraceable cash and if you wanted to put it in a bank you had to run it <laughs> through a cash business and then it evolved then the colombian drug cartels realized they could set up dummy companies that didn't run anything but did things like buy and sell um construction equipment because yes. construction equipment is like a million and a half two million dollars per um item so mm-hmm. I could sell you, you could sell you could sell me, and it looks like all this stuff is exchanging hands. It looks like the revenue is coming from legitimate sources, but yep. there is no construction equipment. It's all just paper transactions. Um, and this and this is much cheaper, yep. right? So back in the old day, you would lose almost seventy percent of the profits from illegal activities through the actual laundering of the money. So it was extremely inefficient because you still had to have functioning businesses. You still had to, you actually had to run a mafia Italian restaurant. You actually had to do a restaurant at 8% margins. And you had to pay everyone well enough to keep their mouths shut. (laughs) Yeah. Right? But it's a lot easier and cheaper, right, to pay one tax attorney or three tax attorneys um, if you're at a large enough level to make it just all look kosher. Then you then you meet real psychopaths. Then you make enough money to meet real psychopaths who wear a polo and they shake your hand and they smile and they say, gosh, you know, I'd, I'd really love to find the solutions we can find for you and your taxes. And they have the twinkle in their eye that when two psychopaths see it in each other's eyes, they're like, yes, yes, let's find some tax solutions. Wink, 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 wink. Yeah. And so... <laughs> 
this, when done to the absolute extreme, and Russia was the absolute extreme of sort of a gangster economy, in which the ultra-wealthy would extract money from the country and then spread it abroad, because they don't want to live in Russia. Right. They've made Russia suck. They want to spend time in Monte Carlo. They want to spend <laughs> vacations in Paris. Their kids want to go to school in New York or, or in L.A. or whatever. Right. So it turns out that over the years, under the Putin uh, regime, the Rush, uh, Putin and his oligarchs have managed to extract an, offsh- an offshore about half of the nation's wealth. Amazing. This is insane. But by the way, by the way, before we like take too many shits on Russia, I just want to say like this is exactly what's happening in the United States and why our bridges are collapsing. Anyway, yeah. go on. <laughs> uh, I'll get to the U.S. in a minute. <laughs> so this is like an extreme example, right? But not as extreme as it used to be. The United States used to have an amount of wealth hidden offshore that was under ten percent which is essentially rather normal and in line with most other places. But we have passed the 10% threshold and we're quickly rising toward 20. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And what this means is like, think about Russia. If they just brought back all the money that the oligarchs have hidden over shore and spread it out, the population could be twice as wealthy. And this Uh, is something that the Russian soldiers have encountered when they went to Ukraine, is that they were told Ukraine was this horrible hellscape backwater. And they're like, wait, wait, this place is really nice. (laughs) Yeah, it's really nice. It seems kind of nice to live here. Um, My my parents went on a uh, like a little river cruise uh, through Russia. They went to like Moscow and then they took, I think, a train to St. Peter's. I don't know. They, They said, you know, it's so beautiful. There's so much here. But, like, when I say it looks like, my mom said it looks like all of the, she described it word for word as there are cranes everywhere all rusting in place. Mm-hmm. And it just looks like there was this moment of growth and someone just pulled the plug out of the wall and no one bothered to plug the machines back in again. It's just, it's dirty. It's it's dirty, but not, not like, eh, it's dirty here. Like, it's sooty. Like, when you don't have the money to pay, like, power washers to come by and... Uh, power wash the walls by the road you know what i mean because the whole point is not to live there right (laughs) right 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 that's where you get your money but it's not where you live right right this is when we talk about an extractive class this is the extractive class this is also the class of american who decides that they want to build gated communities yep right they don't want to pay into public schools because Unlike in Russia, there are great places in the United States where they want to work, where they want to live. So they can live there. They can live in Paris. They can live in those places. But they don't get their money necessarily from there. The wealth is not being created on Wall Street, right? The money that flows into Wall Street comes because it's being extracted from everyone else. Yep. And this is the key. So there is a – so Professor uh, de Geest – um, he's a great law and econ professor at WashU. Uh, he wrote this great book um, called Rents. Um, and <laughs> basically his argument is like 38-ish, 35 to 38% of our economy is simply uh, rent seeking, yep. which, is basically, which is profits uh, taken above what profits would be yielded in a functioning market economy. A, a buy and sell market. Yeah. 
Exactly. So this is someone who sells you some – this is what a monopoly might do, right? Yeah. They're the only people selling you pen, selling pencils, so they charge you 38% more than what the pencil is actually right. worth if there were, actual, if there were uh, other people selling pencils in the market. And he's arguing that, you know, essentially everyone is 38% poorer yep. <laughs> um, or we could all work 38% less and – receive the same amount of have the same amount of wealth if we just had functioning markets and it's this kind of extractive behavior that he calls the pickpocket economy and wow. this is a really good way to think about it let's like think of a very simple economy in which you have two classes of people you have farmers and you have thieves yep and stealing is legal in this economy mm-hmm. so the farmers work all day growing the food that yep. everyone needs to eat and then can sell elsewhere for money. While the pickpockets or the thieves try to steal the food that the farmers are growing. The farmer can only make as much as he or she plants, but a thief can steal from multiple farmers. Yep. So the richest people in this society would be the best thieves. Probably one of the smallest and simplest examples of this is like selling us uh, getting rid of cable, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to disconnect and like whatever. And then slowly selling back, you know, piecemeal services until you're back up to paying $90 a month. Or, you know, with startup culture, it kills me because these are a lot of startup brands. For example, there's I don't know if you know this. There's a, a strike basically happening on Etsy. Um, where they're asking people not to shop and uh, people are taking their shops offline because Etsy is exactly that. Etsy is an entire massive platform that's built on literally the sore and tired hands of fucking Mm -hmm. crafters, you know? And they have slowly increased. They have both made it impossible not to sell on Etsy for these people, and they've also slowly increased the the little nitpicking, if you will, pickpocketing fees that it's like almost un- unmanageable for these little crafters. You know, we're talking about people who have like 10%, 20% margins and hours of labor involved. And they do it because they've essentially captured the market. They've created a monopoly. Yep, correct. So uh, I, my favorite example of this was during um, one of the periods in the uh, two th- 2010s, uh, there was a government shutdown. Mm-hmm. And during the government shutdown, airlines, because of the way that they, it's a weird quirk of the airline industry, during that time, all of the, gov- the taxes on uh, tickets are not yep. collected. Hmm. So this should have reduced the price of airline tickets. One would be- think. Because you wouldn't have to pay those extra taxes and stuff like that. The airlines continued to charge people those taxes and just pocketed it. I mean, yeah, yeah, that that sounds airliney. I mean, that's just straight thievery. There's yeah. another example of um, class litigation of it's uh, against AT&T Mobility, and there's a forced arbitration contract which said that you couldn't you couldn't litigate if you entered the cell service. Instead, you had to do arbitration. In the contract was a class waiver. So you couldn't actually bring a class action lawsuit. These things had to be arbitrated one at a time. Oh, God. And the challenge was to the constitutionality of class waivers, and the Supreme Court ruled that class waivers are constitutional. So essentially, we have said that it is okay 
to steal from your customers as long as you steal only a little bit from a lot of people. And you make them click a box with an impossibly 16-page long, full-of-jargon contract that, of course, they're not going to read. And in this thievery economy, you start seeing the people who are lauded as the most productive members of the society, the richest, are the best thieves. So then you get thievery academies where young (laughs) aspiring thieves uh, get trained in the best new stealing techniques. I, I... Now, I know, Matt, you are not calling out our friends at Harvard Business School. (laughs) I would say even my friends in law school (laughs) who fight to keep this kind of thievery legal. Right? Um, Those lawyers out there who do that kind of work, they are essentially the handmaids to the, the extractive class. Dude, there's this woman, there's this horribly, like when I say like predatory, but also like the... At the one of the buildings that this uh, that this um, uh, property management company owns, the ceiling fell in in the lobby. Like the ceiling detached from the ceiling and was on the floor, and it stayed on the floor for like a month plus. And this amazing local person who I won't be named because they do not deserve the smoke that they would get, but like tracked down who their litigation company was and who the lawyer was that represented them. And it was a young white woman, of course, who like I'm sure was wearing a thousand dollar suit in that photo and charging a few hundred dollars an hour to evict people who cannot pay less than a thousand dollars a month for an apartment. When we're talking about legal money laundering, this is part of an entire economy built around exploitation. Right. And we might say we see all these luxury, beautiful high rises in New York. We see the gorgeousness and the results here in the United States, at least uh, those of us who live in those places. But it's based on abusing often to the point of people becoming suicidal or dying deaths of despair of others, sometimes here, sometimes abroad. And when we want to think about what we're doing, what our labor, what we spend our time and energy and limited time on this and limited lives on, is that what we want to be doing? Because I have to say, Sarah, it sure ain't what I want to spend my life on. No. And by the way, we should do an episode on on the definition of death of despair. But the point of that is like if, you know, we think about. Uh, people being exploited like Chinese workers. But in America, you know, if you are continually evicted and then you die homeless of, of, uh, you know, serious long-term alcohol abuse because you never got a moment's rest from the sort of desperation and indignity of extreme poverty, that is also a death of of, uh, despair. Like it's... Yeah. the 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 picture of deaths of despair change across the uh, you know economic strata around the world and in their different cultures, but you can recognize it in all of us. And we also have beyond just like on that individual level, it also has geopolitical ramifications. Yeah, that one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin did not think that the West was going to actually take action against his invasion of the Ukraine was because. They have worked, Russia has worked, and Putin has worked very hard in sort of softly corrupting the institutions of the West. Yes. Because he was pretty sure that the bankers in London, the bankers in New York, weren't going to stand for losing uh, their cash cow or the real estate developers in these places. 
and especially, this is something I have to call out Germany for, Germany chose, because of a freakout about nuclear power, which I have a lot of feelings about this, to build natural gas pipelines and make themselves dependent on yes. imports of natural gas from Russia. Yeah. And this is why, incidentally, natural gas imports are exempt right now from Russian sanctions yeah. because otherwise Germans would go cold this winter. Yeah, it, it's uh, I think it's is it 30 or 40 percent of Western Europe uses Russian natural gas. It's a lot. It's a, it's a more, lot. It's a lot. I think um, like half would, of Germany's natural gas is supplied by Russia. Yeah, that that makes sense. I know that it's, you know, proportionally it changes for every country. But like Western Europe on the whole beyond Germany itself would also freeze because of the dependence on Russian natural gas. Yeah, so we're spending, we're sending billions of dollars to Russia every year that they turn around and use to slaughter civilians in Ukraine. I just, I, I don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound like every crunchy, annoying person I ever met in the state of California, but like, if we don't get a fucking handle on renewable energy, this is what we fund. Like, it's, it's like, it, it is a direct line. Like, you fund the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we fund, like, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Like, we fund despotic governments that, like you said, depend on this exact energy dependence for us to look the other way at their you know, corruption and human rights violations. This is why climate change and fossil fuel production are seen as strategic threats by the U.S. military. Yep. That there are very smart people who understand that our reliance on fossil fuels makes not only the United States, but the entire world less safe. Not just yes. because of climate change, but because we throw money in, we fund the very people who are doing things we abhor. So this is why I know I have a lot of friends who work in finance, <laughs> in corporate law, in tax law. All I have to say is that like, I am very, very polite in person about these things um, because I genuinely like all of you as human beings. But when we think about what decisions we make and the world that our time, because the you, you like, we spent how many years in college and law school? Yeah. How much time working ourselves to the bone? Is this what we want to be our legacy that we leave behind? Whether or not we want to insulate ourselves and say, oh, it's too attenuated. That is ultimately the world we are building together. Yeah. All I can say is that despite my love personally for my friends who work in those fields, I hope and I pray that they find something better to spend their lives on. <laughs> their talents and their and their wonderful talents and I know that many of them have their hearts in the right place I just want their jobs to be there too oh man sounds like some of your friends need to spend a lot of time with the real Nick Offerman because uh, if you go see Nick Offerman he will have you convinced to go quit your corporate job and just do anything for yourself that feels meaningful and I mean that I mean that truly as somebody who's worked in like publishing and corporate marketing that uh like get it's it's possible to do something else and it's possible to be like like the banker that i just talked to like they're a little tiny funding company that does essentially like small and and medium-sized loans for small businesses and you can if you're really good at it and you're a finance whiz you can do that and you can go do it in a way that really really helps somebody and like circulates money out of a saudi prince 
uh, latest Jaguar purchase, live Jaguar purchase, and into like, you know, a middle class family who's trying to buy their kid braces and a college education. Just saying. Or people with dreams who are building companies that will, <laughs> you know, that it might not have an IPO that rakes in billions of dollars for everyone involved, but it'll build the community that they're in. It'll provide a stable life. Uh, for not only them for themselves, yeah. but also for their employees, yep. and while making the world better. And I don't mean that in some crunchy, like, <laughs> namby-pamby, like, uh, reiki kind of way. I mean that it will materially improve the lives yeah. of the community that they're in, the people they interact with, and at the same time, it'll let them sleep at night. Yeah, yeah. And, and I am so lucky that I've had a lot of older people in my life who is going to get me choked up but you need to make friends with people who are like old and I mean like near death old and like have them talk to you about like the things they actually regret like if they're drinkers you need to make friends with an old person and get them the gin they like and mix up their cocktails and sit and talk with them because I promise you mm -hmm. you will not wish that you spent more time turning a little money into big money for a Saudi billionaire. Like, I promise you, you won't. No, of course you won't. So my dad decided uh, not to go into corporate law, not to go into a big law firm, but to stay in private practice. And the reason was he could be at our soccer games. He could go to our recitals and um, our music recitals. And he wouldn't be one of the jerk parents who had a stack of work that they were on or were on, the, on their cell phone the whole time. <laughs> yes. You know, he could actually enjoy that time um, with us, and he could have dinner with us every night. Every night. Yeah. And we could watch Jeopardy together, and I could always guess Ulysses S. Grant uh, for Final Jeopardy as a joke. <laughs> and, I, and I bet that at no point then or now do you think, yeah, that time with my dad was pretty great, but I wish we had a bigger pool. <laughs> Uh, and I think at no time in his life he thought, man, I really want to drive a sports car instead of spending, instead of spending time with my family. Oh, he drove a Toyota Camry, which incidentally I have. I, ha I drive a 2009 Toyota Camry that's a little beat up. But like awesome. it still has uh, the Mentos in it that my dad had. <laughs> it's been, they're, like, oh. they're like 10 years old and I don't like Mentos, but I decided to, just to keep them. Oh. He could always say to himself, you know, every night he could sleep well. Because he knew that he, the work he was doing was benefiting uh, his community, it, he was benefiting the people around him and benefiting his family. And I think that even though something is legal, and I know that people always say, you know, we complied with all the, the proper things or, <laughs> or our friends in finances. Well, we did all the, rec the, all the legally required background <laughs> checks. <laughs> <laughs> like, but you knew. But you knew. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're a smart person. You know that when, you know, it's being owned by the subsidiary of the subsidiary of the subsidiary, you don't have to do all that by law yet. Yeah. Yet. Go Elizabeth Warren. Uh, go Katie Porter. <laughs> um, you still know because no one else sets up their businesses that way. And, and you know exactly what you're looking at, you know? Like, none of those people, it's just like, don't, please don't play dumb about this. You know exactly what you're doing and who you're getting involved with, like you said. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, if you were dumb and you didn't know any better, that's one thing. Except I know y'all, <laughs> y'all are crazy smart. Like, you know, you know. Of course. And speaking of things I know, I know that <coughs> Metal Honey is the best, I mean, honestly, I have to say, one of the best additions to your kitchen that you can possibly make. 
Pearl. Thanks, man. Um, I do have something that I don't know how many people are going to end up listening to this episode, but if you give a shit and you like recipes and you like cooking, uh, you can now go on to metalhoney.com, M-E-T-A-L-H-O-N-E-Y.com, and click on the recipes tab. And now I have, like, recipes and recipe cards to go with them. If you want to, like, print it out, if you're super crazy type A like me, you can print it out and put it in a little binder. Because I see you. I see you, fam. I see you, crazy fam. You're me. And those recipes are amazing. My mom made an Instagram account just to follow Metal Honey because of <laughs> uh, the recipes. Because she's always trying to figure out new things to eat. Um, oh, your mom is great. Yeah, and she and her friends are Metal Honey fans. Uh, as it. Sarah knows. And that uh, even <laughs> it's, it, they went out as Christmas presents. <laughs> Um, yes. and cause a lot of the, a lot of the friends and their kids are foodies. So it was like a nice yeah. thing to give everyone. And literally everyone who's used it has just said that it's absolutely amazing. Um, it goes in so many things and you can just sort of take recipes that you thought were a little bland or under seasoned and adding a little bit of the metal honey gives it a, a sweetness and a kick that you just, that's just amazing. Thank you so much. I yeah, every every uh, all the savory honeys. There are two savory honeys: scorpion honey, which is very hot, and sweet stinger, which is more garlic umami. And they both have a fermented pepper mash that goes into them. And I love that fermentation. It's a controlled, salty fermentation, and so you get like a little bit of funkiness in there. So I really want to make a wing sauce and call it funky chicken and have like uh, <laughs> like a uh, kimchi and gochujang in it uh, with some other stuff in there. That would be fun. Uh, that sounds amazing. Also, all the Korean fried chicken places out there um, could get on that train. Um, and I have oh. to say, personally, I just use—I just made the other day, I made a recipe that I had created in Israel, which was a honey garlic za'atar chicken. And oh. I modified it instead of using normal, like just straight honey. I used metal honey. I used a scorpion. Um, awesome. Well, I bet that's a spicy boy. Well, I used it. I mixed it. So I, I, okay, I mixed okay. it down because it was too hot if I just used it straight. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of honey because I, I, I – anyway, I, um, I uh, brush it onto the chicken yeah. um, to help it caramelize the skin. Oh, man, it really elevated it. Like you get the earthiness <laughs> from the za'atar and then you get like the funkiness and the sweetness and the kick from the uh, scorpion honey. And it was a significant improvement on something that I already loved um, – and maybe I'll give you the recipe and you can post it. Um, awesome. Yeah, because it is super Let's simple. Do it. It's one of those chicken dishes that you that it, it takes you 10 minutes uh, to prepare the chicken. Then you pop it in the oven for a while and forget about it. And then it's done. <laughs> um, and, My fave. Yeah. And I even made it in one of the, in a toaster oven back in the day <laughs> with small chickens. <laughs> uh, but I have – because I was in Israel, so I didn't have a big oven. But seriously, metalhoney.com. Um, Buy it, lo- live it, love it. Um, join its Instagram. It. Go to its webpage. Get get yep, all that at, stuff. At, at Metal Honey Foods is where you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. And it's about to be market season. So um, come find me at Garfield Park, Original Farmer's Market in downtown Indy, Sobro Farmer's Market at 49th and College, and Indy Farmer's Market at the John Boner Center. And I really wish that was not the name of it but the name's john boner and it is the boner center and where else would i be baby but the boner center you know i mean when you're there uh you know <laughs> you're the hot honey everywhere with, that i am is the, the boner center the, you know. the hot honey with the hot honey 
So that'll do it for this week's episode, uh, the legal money laundering episode uh, of the Perpetual Stew. Uh, I'm Matt. I'm Sarah. And until next time, stay curious. Bye.